0: Welcome again to The Perfect Puzzle. And we will again start with a word of prayer. Father, as we get into discussion of the death of Jesus Christ, I ask your guidance and presence of your Holy Spirit with all of us, Father, as we learn the backdrop that you want us to learn, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. We finished last time. Jesus, of Philippi. And his challenge there, set in motion a string of events that are going to lead up to his trial and his death on the cross. Now, we've read about the trial of Jesus a lot of times. There's been movies, there's TV series, there's all kinds of stuff you could go to for reference to it. Uh, your number one reference is the Bible, by the way. Uh but there is a supernatural backdrop to all of it that is frequently overlooked. Because to understand what finally draws the death sentence from the Jewish authorities and the transfer of Jesus to Pontius Pilate to carry it out, to fully understand all that we have to go back to the Old Testament book of Daniel. Because in Daniel there is a meeting that God holds with His heavenly host, His Divine Council. Daniel 7 verse begins with an odd vision with Daniel sees four beasts coming out of the sea in the first eight verses. They're all freakish, but the fourth beast is the worst. In the dreams interpreted in the Old Testament, both objects and living things always represent something. And in this dream, the four beasts in Daniel's visions are four empires. We know that because his vision aligns with the themes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 which was about Babylon and three other empires to follow. Our focus, though, is on what Daniel describes next, beginning at verse 9 of Daniel 7. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure, pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand, thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, we know that the Ancient of Days is the God of Israel. That's pretty easy to determine, especially when we, if we compare the description of this of his throne in Daniel's dream to Ezekiel's vision of of God's throne in Ezekiel chapter 1. and Ezekiel's vision also included a human figure on the throne of God in Ezekiel 1, verses 26 and 27. The fire, wheels, and human form on the throne in Ezekiel's vision are the same as Daniel's. But did you notice there isn't just one throne? There are a number of thrones in Daniel's vision in verse 9. Enough for the divine court. It's God's counsel. Daniel 7, verse 10. The heavenly court meets to decide the fate of the beast, the empires in division. It's declared that the fourth beast must be killed and the other beast rendered powerless. That's again where in Daniel 7, that's verses 11 and 12. They will be displaced by another king and kingdom. And that's where things get even more interesting. Because Daniel continues narrating his vision, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." That's verses 13 and 14. Now the term son of man is a phrase used many times in the Old Testament, and it should be no surprise that it speaks of a human. The surprise is how else this human is described in this passage. Verse 13 describes a man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days. Now, to ancient people all over the Mediterranean, whether you were Israelite or not, the one who, quote, rides the clouds, unquote, was a deity. His status as a god was not questioned. Consequently, any figure to whom the title was attributed was a god. Now, why is that a big deal? Because everywhere else that description occurs in the Old Testament, it was used only of God himself. Isaiah 191, Deuteronomy 33:26, Psalm 68 verses 32 through 33, Psalm 104 verses one to four. You can look it up yourself, but in Daniel 7, God is already in the scene as the ancient of days. It's as if in his vision, Daniel sees a second God, who is also a man, something like the way Christians believe in God is more than one person. This is the lone exception to the pattern of using this unambiguous deity title of the God of Israel, Daniel 7.13 there, a second figure, a human figure, receives this description. Daniel 7, therefore, describes two powers in heaven, two Yahweh figures, since in all other places in the Old Testament, Yahweh is the cloud rider. And just as importantly, the one who rides the clouds in Daniel 7.13, receives everlasting kingship from the Ancient of Days, as we saw in the, in the previous session. Everlasting kingship belonged only to the Son of David. Now I'm referring back to session uh, 13. We've just filled in more of the Messianic Mosaic. The ultimate Son of God, Son of David, the Messianic King will be both human, Son of Man, and deity, the writer of, of the clouds. And that's precisely what we get in the New Point in the New Testament, and it's precisely the point. If that doesn't give you some kind of chills, I don't know what will. But as Jesus stood before Caiaphas at his trial in Matthew twenty six, his life is hanging in the balance. He hits a nerve by referring to this verse in Daniel, picking up Matthew 26. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, the terminology there, under Jewish law, if you want to call it that, is that when he was put under an oath, which is what means by "I, I adjure you by the living God, he was legal, Jesus is legally required to answer this question. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, reading on in Matthew, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. That's Matthew 59 through 66. In what seems like a pointless answer to a clear question, Jesus refers back to Daniel 7.13 in response to Caiaphas. He said, do you really want to know who I am, Caiaphas? Listen carefully. You know, the reaction is immediate. Caiaphas understood in an instant that Jesus was claiming to be the second God figure of Daniel 7.13, the human who was described in a way only God was described in the Old Testament. Jesus is claiming to be God in human form. and That was blasphemy and grounds for a death sentence. Jesus, of course, knew that. He had no interest in protecting himself. He knew he must die to restore God's kingdom, to bring believers into God's family, reclaim the nations from the evil principalities and powers who controlled the nations God rejected at Babel. And die he did. Psalm 22 is well known for how it describes the physical effects of crucifixion through the words of David because it gives us a glimpse of horrors unseen at the cross. The suffering psalmist moans, All who see me make fun of me. They stick out their tongues and shake their heads. You you relied on the Lord, they say. Why doesn't he save you? If the Lord likes you, why doesn't he help you? And then it kind of shifts here. Something else is going on at the cross. According to David in Psalm 22, Many enemies surround me like bulls. They are all around me like fierce bulls from the land of Bashan. They open their mouths like lions roaring and tearing at me. My strength is gone, gone like water spilled on the ground. All my bones are out of joint. Uh, A creepy part of that description is the fierce bulls from Bashan. You know, there been many times I can tell you, in Old Testament times, Bashan was ground zero to demonic gods in the realm of the dead. It was a leading center for the worship of Baal. Baal is symbolized by bulls and cows. Bulls from the land of Bashan is a reference to demons, the powers of darkness. In our own time, the imagery is captured in all its eerie repulsion by C.S. Lewis in the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe." No one who has read that book or seen that movie can forget Aslan humbly surrendering his life to the delighted hordes of the White Witch on a stone table. And just as Jesus utterly outwitted Satan, Aslan had played the White l- Witch for a fool. What evil misperceived as their moment of triumph turned out to be its own irreversible defeat. Satan's loss of his claim over the lives of, his, of the children of Adam was not only the loss he just suffered at the cross. His cohorts in rebellion, the supernatural gods, the Elohim of the nations, would see their domains begin to vanish. The supernatural gods had been assigned those nations by the Most High, the God of Israel. Again, that's Deuteronomy 4, 19-20, Deuteronomy 32, 8-9. and 9. We, I've told you that several times. We are not told when they became enemies of God, but they did. They had turned God's own people, Israel, away from worshipping him and to instead sacrifice to them. That's Deuteronomy 17, verses 1 to 3. Deuteronomy 29, verses 26 and 27. Deuteronomy 32, verse 17. Psalm 82, that's the psalm we looked at to introduce the divine counsel. tells us these Elohim abused their power and rewarded evil. They don't care for God's law or justice. Psalm 82, verses 1 to 5 again says this, God presides in the heavenly council. In the assembly of the gods, Elohim in Hebrew, he gives his decision. You must stop judging unjustly. You must no longer be partial to the wicked. Defend the rights of the poor and the orphans. Be fair to the needy and the helpless. Rescue them from the power of evil people. How ignorant you are, how stupid. You are completely corrupt and justice has disappeared from the world. The rest of the psalm tells us God called this heavenly council to tell the gods that their future is bleak. Their reigns of terror would end when God decided to reclaim the nations. He goes on to say, You are gods, I said. All of you are children of the Most High. But you will die like mortals. Your life will end like that of any prince. Come, O God, and rule the world. All the nations are yours. When would God decide to reclaim the nations? You can read the answer in Daniel seven fourteen. He was given authority, honor, and royal power, so that the people of all nations, races, and languages would serve him. His authority would last forever, and his kingdom would never end. The messaging of Daniel 7, 13, and 14 is clear. When the Son of Man receives the kingdom, it will be the beginning of the end for the supernatural powers of darkness. As Jesus received the kingdom, at His resurrection. Ephesians chapter 1, verse, beginning at verse 20. God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right side in the heavenly world. Christ rules there above all heavenly rulers, authorities, powers, and lords. He has a title superior to all titles of authority in this world and in the next. Before the cross, Satan had eternal claim on all our souls. All humans die, and so go to the realm of the dead, which is his domain and there we would remain if it weren't for the sacrifice of Jesus and his resurrection. Through faith in his work on the cross we are raised with him. As we saw in previous sessions, Satan was expelled from God's presence when the kingdom began on earth. Luke 10 verse 18. God would have no more of his accusations against believers. He has no more right to our souls. So let me ask you, why then do we live like he does? Salvation is not gained by moral perfection. It is a gift that comes by by grace through faith, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. It is plain and simple. That in turn means salvation cannot be lost by moral imperfection. What is not at all gained by performance Cannot be lost by poor performance. Salvation is about believing loyalty, trusting what Jesus did to defeat Satan's claim and turning from all other gods in the belief systems of which they are a part. That is the message of God's kingdom we are commissioned to tell to the nations. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. And as we obey God's commission, the dominions of the enemy gods, the principalities and powers, shrink, soul by soul, moment by moment. The gates of hell, the realm of the dead, do not withstand the resurrection and will not withstand the advance of the gospel. Now at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, though, None of this seemed real to the disciples, but they're soon going to get the message in a dramatic, unforgettable way. We'll get into that next time. Until then, this is The Perfect Puzzle.